This yes. is hell. All right, then. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend? Went to sleep early last night with two hours of This is Hell to do in the morning. Woke up in the morning with two and a half hours of dog diarrhea stretched across a sissel rug. Oh, dude. What's a sissel rug? A cheap rug. It's a yeah. nice way to say it's a cheap rug. <laughs> okay. Wow, that is not good. My uh, weekend was really weird because the whole thing was just completely erased from my memory by the amateur fireworks show outside. Was my that backyard. what erased it from your memory? Oh, dude. It was insane. It was like three and a half hours of a regular show, except three shows happening at the same time. There were at least six six commercial mortars in Warren Park, the park outside my house, and it was incredible. At one point, my girlfriend and I were sitting there, and we're like, you know, it's been a, a grand finale now. For 45 straight minutes, it was incredible, and the people were competing against each other. It was it was incredibly frightening for my cats, and now that's why I'm a little bit afraid that Mel didn't come out to get uh, breakfast this morning, because I know he freaks out from fireworks. I uh, didn't expect to have this revelation when I was uh, watching communities shooting off fireworks as someone who uh, usually licks the boot of authority <laughs> and uh, craves... Uh, craves direction and leadership but uh it's actually way more fun when everyone in your neighbor is just shooting off fireworks randomly instead of having a centralized fireworks show oh way I'm better in favor this is cool way better way better it's far more organic and i'm gonna use the word authentic just to be a dick on today's show the age of the climate change denialist is over and the era of the progressive denialist has begun. We will be considering the politics and power necessary to confront not only the global pandemic of COVID-19, but climate change in a few minutes when we talk to Kai Heron and Jody Dean, who co-wrote the E-Flux article, Revolution or Ruin. It turns out all over the world there are far too many people who are trying to end climate change without any sort of political alternative, while others are busy trying to save capitalism instead of saving the planet. Kai is a casualized academic with research interests in political theory, ecology, psychoanalysis, and political economy. He is an editor at Roar Magazine. Jody is professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York. Her most recent book is Comrade, an essay on political belonging, which is fantastic. And we discussed it with Jody during her most recent appearance here on This Is Hell last August. Today will be Jody's fourth appearance on This Is Hell, and you can hear all of our conversations with Jody at our website, thisishell.com. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Alex has this week's Hangover Cure. This week's Hangover Cure is Avocado Eggs, an article at bostonmagazine.com by writer Asia Bradley headlined, Feel Better with These Seven Healthy Hangover Cures, where we also found last week's cure, homemade ginger juice. Bradley writes, It's completely normal to have a craving for greasy, fatty food after a night of drinking. Instead of something greasy, try these avocado eggs, which are made by baking some eggs and bacon in a hollowed-out avocado. Hmm. You make this recipe your own by using vegetables instead of meat, adding tofu, or adding a bean of your choice. Avocados, according to nutritiondata.self.com. Chuck, you're on a journey with this. Yeah, I, else. I, did, I was down a wormhole with this one. Uh, avocados can raise low potassium levels from alcohol consumption and dehydration. In fact, one avocado has 20% of the recommended daily requirement of potassium. A paper published by the National Library of Medicine's National Center of Biotechnology Information in 2001 entitled Liver Injury Suppressing Compounds for avo from Avocado showed that avocados contain compounds that protect against liver injury since drinking alcohol heavily excessively harms your liver. Avocados may help cure hangovers. So that makes this week's hangover cure avocado eggs. I, you are a far better cook than I am. You can't just, you'd have to peel the avocado. You can't just... And, and if you did peel the avocado and then took out the seed and then you put eggs inside, wouldn't that be an incredibly messy thing to try to... It, the whole thing is confusing. I feel like baking an avocado in the oven for the time it would take for the egg to cook uh, would like do something strange to the avocado. That's right. Maybe like, I'll go to try. I don't know, man. The picture made it look like it works. Uh, I don't believe in pictures. This is not the media. This is hell. Quick follow-up on what we've mentioned at the beginning of each of our past two Monday shows. Yep, it was another weekend when Trump got all Hitlery again. 
as his willful ignorance campaign tour moved on from Tulsa to Florida and this week to Mount Rushmore. From dehumanizing people as animals to praising white power and now making up leftist fascists. This time, that's right, Trump warned us about the completely made-up and imaginary far-left fascists of Antifa that wanted to end America. In a speech that, uh, had I actually watched it, my weekend would have been completely ruined. Again, making it three straight weekends of Trump dominating my life in the news media with straight-up totalitarianism, a word that Trump had trouble pronouncing in his speech. Trump did correctly pronounce coronavirus once, but he only mentioned coronavirus once because being responsible for over 100,000 deaths does not win you elections. What does win votes is engaging in a divisive culture war of fear, targeting those who shun reality for a myth of nationalist exceptionalism, allowing for the nurturing and eventual expression of hate and its inevitable violence. Now that's a winning strategy, especially when the voters happen to be under a state of emergency and exception that's perfect for stealing elections. That said, for several years now here on This Is Hell, every six months we have taken stock of what we have learned over the past half year. But we've been learning so much lately, and we want to be able to speak to today's guests for as long as possible, so we apparently need to break these up into quarterly This Is Hell reports on what's happening on the show. So it's time to quickly go over to briefly touch on what we learned in the first three months of 2020, January, February, March, guest by guest in order of appearance starting way back at the beginning of this year before we realized a deadly global pandemic had already been unleashed on the world and prior to a cop murdering George Floyd. Back on this year's very first show, we were told here on This Is Hell that capitalism's downfall may not be as apocalyptic as we've been warned it will be. In fact, we don't have to experience disaster when it fails at all. We found out the social safety net has been torn to shreds and does nothing to address poverty, and that food banks help, but we cannot depend upon them as some kind of solution to poverty. It really is time to break up Britain, the whole damn thing. England's time at running the aisles is done, and that's got to end. The assassination of Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps Commander Qasem Soleimani was the outcome of exaggerated hype by the U.S. government and media. Democrats' willful use of the term, the far-right term, illegal immigrants, is proof positive that the anti-immigrant nature of U.S. politics is bipartisan. The U.S. military's attempt at full-spectrum dominance of the entire planet for at least another half-century has completely failed, which is not a bad thing. Mass incarceration may not be as much about racial disparities as economic ones, meaning it may be more about class than race. President Trump is defunding the war on cancer, a war on the war on cancer, if you will, and that does not bode well for those of us who do not want to die from said cancer. Settlers screwed up this continent's already existing plentiful and productive food system by ignoring indigenous land management techniques and commodifying the whole continent with capitalism. The history of the transatlantic slave trade is far better understood as a centuries-long global war over slavery because... Surprise, surprise, to keep a huge system of institutionalized global slavery going, you got to be brutal. you got to be at war with the world. The privatization of space prioritizes the bottom line, which could be bad for the science and priorities of space exploration. School lunches suck because the government subsidizes lousy food from big agriculture, which depends upon those handouts for their profits, all while feeding kids bad, overly processed food. The construction of buildings is a major contributor to climate change, and we talked to an architect who admitted how their profession is complicit in the planet's devastation. The lives of frontline ambulance workers in marginalized communities are torn between how the government wants to regulate the poor from above and how the police want to manage those in poverty who are often people of color from below. We got a review of the first very disappointing year of Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador's term in office. It turns out promising hope and change doesn't mean you will actually follow through on that promise of hope and change. Economic imperialism is driven by resource exploitation that has turned the earth into a planetary mine, and it is visible to all of, all of us, all around us. We just need to know where to look. 
If you think the misleading bots on Twitter are bad for democracy, just wait until virtual reality completely immerses us in the misleading world of disinformation and becomes the new uh, political indoctrination tool of this century. The idea of the Anthropocene suggests nature has finally succumbed to human activity, which is weird because it sure seems like nature has more power over us than ever. So maybe we should reconsider what the Anthropocene means and maybe even consider ways in which we can serve nature now before it's supposedly gone. Neoliberal financialization has caused and is continuing to cause the collapse of small-town rural America, leading to the perfect environment for the rise of authoritarian populism. The direct action of Extinction Rebellion, which we'll be talking about today with Jody and Kai, is recruiting a lot of people to their cause, but maybe that's not the best way to address the root causes of climate change when Extinction Rebellion insists it is not political. Depression and its intense feeling of unfeeling is driven more today not by a feeling of loneliness, but by never being left alone. Always having a gadget constantly alerting us, leading to a new antagonistic depression that has its own politics. We are living among the ruins of capitalism. You see them everywhere, collapsing factories, warehouses left to rot, whole neighborhoods abandoned. Maybe disaster architecture fans shouldn't be celebrating, even trying to save these relics of imperialism. Capitalism is robbing nature, ripping it off, jumping it in the alley, cold cocking the environment and taking everything, leaving nature battered, bruised, and struggling to survive. And as we are part of that nature here on planet Earth, that means capitalism is an existential threat to all of us. Every president of the United States of America has been a racist. Every one of them. We were fortunate enough to have a guest on who told the story of human labor from prehistory to the modern day. And we did that in under 45 minutes. The Democratic Party had absolutely no interest in Bernie Sanders as their nominee, no matter how much money he was raising, no matter how nice he was to the other candidates, no matter how he was polling, no matter how many delegates he was getting. The party never had any interest in having Bernie as their candidate. Focusing only on race can lead to policies that fall far short in ending racial discrimination, which means race is about a lot more than race. The bit tyrants are controlling the new economy of smart devices and platforms like the robber barons dominated the railroads during the gilded age of the 19th century. Soap operas, yes, soap operas, have guided our understanding of gender and social identities, and due to their need for conflict, there is also an opening for dissent, dissent that challenges the conservative norms of many of their right-wing viewers. Go figure. The war on food waste is a waste of time because it doesn't really address the problems with our incredibly flawed food system more generally. The idea of citizen science, that is, citizens pursuing the scientific method in hopes of helping society, seems noble enough, but it can come with a lot of baggage. Baggage that ends up with all sorts of questions that we have for science. Our worldview has been shaped by smartphones, and they dictate our daily lives, and unless we start reconsidering our relationship with smartphones now, they will be controlling our future far more than they already control our present. After centuries of Europeans stealing their land from them in Canada, the country's First Nations peoples want their land back, and they have a plan showing exactly how they can do just that. And they're willing to share it with indigenous peoples everywhere. The coronavirus pandemic might mean that when we are finally able to sit and eat in restaurants like we did before the virus, we will be doing so not in an independent business, but one that is corporate-owned, which will change nightlife into only a simulation of what it was in the past. Even when you're, you are not at work, you're working for somebody else. You work for free at the grocery store when you self-check out, taking a job from a cashier. It's time we stop volunteering our time to highly profitable corporations. It was not oil that built the Middle East, but coal, coal unearthed by the British Empire that got the whole ball rolling on climate change. Yep, the freaking British Empire started the process that eventually led to climate change. Joe Biden, the neoliberal Iraq war supporting mass incarceration champion whose campaign winning primaries was a huge boost for the healthcare industry, will be the Democratic Party's nominee for president this fall. I know we are coming off the 4th of July weekend celebrating the birth of the United States, but the U.S. Constitution is not the end-all and be-all of liberal democracy. In fact, it is a very undemocratic document, as we discussed on our show. Unlike the rest of the news media, we did something completely radical by looking at the root causes of the novel coronavirus outbreak. And no, it wasn't China. It was globalized agriculture. 
and you guessed it, capitalism. We explained flattening the curve, set out all of the different models that could happen depending on public discipline, giving a pregame of things to come, again, which was not being accurately described on the big TV news media outlets, despite some being on 24-7. Back in March, we were freaking out about what the future may hold for us under the virus and freaking out even more about the idea of returning to the pre-virus norm that completely sucked. We had a series of weekly reports from around the world by correspondents, contributors, and past guests here on This Is Hell, starting with our man in San Juan, Dave Buchan, who told us how after not one but two hurricanes, followed by a horrible response from the Trump administration, and then an earthquake, how Puerto Rico was handling the coronavirus. We were given a guided tour of the absolutely phenomenal world of the Black Feminist Manifesto, wherein you can find some of the best writing on political transformation, liberation, and humanity. We explained how the CARES stimulus package meant, uh, meant to the, keep the economy and workers going during the pandemic was a huge ripoff and gigantic boost for those in private equity. And that's what we learned in only the first three months here on This Is Hell This Year. Tune in to the beginning of tomorrow's show to find out what we've learned in the last three months of This Is Hell. Yeah, we definitely have to do these reviews more than twice a year more than once every six months. They've got to be quarterly reviews every three months. Coming up, progressive denialism and attempts to save capitalism are derailing the fight against climate change. We will also have Rotten History and tell you the rest of this week's guests. The planet's on fire, so yes, this is how we can learn a lot from the response to the novel coronavirus pandemic about what the response to climate change will look like and does look like. And if they are at all similar, they will both be missed opportunities, both politically and for the power of the state. Here to explain, Kai Heron and Jody Dean co-wrote the E-Flux article, Revolution or Ruin. First, welcome to This Is Hell, Kai. Hi, thank you very much for having us. Kai is a casualized academic with research interests in political theory, ecology, psychoanalysis, and political economy. He's an editor at Roar Magazine, which we've featured several articles from that magazine on our show in the past. You can find out more about Roar Mag by going to roarmag.org, and you can follow Kai on Twitter at Kai Heron. That's K-A-I-H-E-R-O-N. Also returning to This Is Hell is Jody Dean. Welcome back, Jody. Thanks for having me back. Jody is professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York. Her most recent book is Comrade, an essay on political belonging, which is fantastic. And we discussed it with Jody during her most recent appearance on This Is Hell last August. Again, this is Jody's fourth appearance on This Is Hell, and you can hear all of our conversations with Jody at our site, thisishell.com. Follow Jody on Twitter at Jody7768 and find her writing at jdean com. We have all of those links at the front page of our website. Kai, let's start with you. You and Jody write that we've read the news and it keeps getting worse as pandemics spread, as the climate crisis continues unabated. The imperatives of capital prevent state action on anything that, but protecting banks and corporations. The imperatives of capital were on full display in the CARES coronavirus stimulus package with, again, a priority of protecting banks and corporations. The argument is protecting banks and corporations is protecting us. It protects the economy. It allows the economy to function. And without banks and corporations, we're not protected and safe. Kai, how much do we endanger the economy and therefore ourselves if we do not prioritize banks and corporations? Are the imperatives of capitalism the imperatives for our survival? Absolutely not. No. Um, I think we're often told, I don't know, so the UK, the way we have it in the UK, there's this, uh, we're told that what is good for the economy is good for us, right? And to make uh, what's good for us come true, we have to do what's good for the economy. Um, This is just a complete myth, right? So reopening bars happened this week. Um, Hundreds of people took to the streets in London, possibly creating a second wave of the coronavirus in the UK. And we do that on the basis that this is good for the economy and what is supposedly good for the economy will get us back up and running and is good for us. Um, I just think we need to break through that myth that whatever is good for the economy is good for us. Um, it goes the same for the climate for climate change. You know, it's good for the economy if fossil fuels keep going after the to recover from the coronavirus. Um, but what we really need for the sake of humanity and for the sake of the planet is a drastic transition away from fossil fuels and towards renewable energy. 
Jody, every year we burn more and more fossil fuels. To you, what explains humanity's willingness to burn record amounts of fossil fuels when humanity is aware that burning fossil fuels causes climate change? The time of climate change denialism seems to have ended. Because the argument has always been the, the problem is they just don't know. And if they knew, then they would do something about it, that the issue is a lack of information. So to you, what explains why we continue to burn record amounts of fossil fuels every year, especially now that we all know fossil fuels cause climate change? So um, I think we need to reframe the question a little bit, Chuck. It's not that humanity is making this choice, right? It's not like um, you've got everyday people all the time saying, gee, I am really glad in the United States that we don't have adequate public transportation so that I can spend a whole bunch of my income on a car, car insurance and driving. It's not a matter of people's individual choices and it's not a matter of humanity as a collective making this choice. Both those moves of of, uh, this gross generalization like humanity as a whole, and the association of humanity as a whole with individualized individualized choice omits the element of the capitalist system. So it's a capitalist system that is pushing one set of options, one path, and that's obviously for the sake of capital accumulation of the you know of the very few of the very rich. So it's we've got to get away from thinking about climate change in terms of all of us and think about it much more politically right think about it in terms of a struggle and a fight and i want to get to that point of how it affects all of us this whole idea of us all being in this together in just a moment uh you write that uh kai you write that climate change that innocuous moniker preferred by republican political consultant frank lutz and adopted by the george w bush administration because global warming seemed too apocalyptic has moved from seeming far away and impossible to being here now and undeniable this has not stopped the united states and canada from providing economic relief funds in the wake of coronavirus to oil and gas companies. Kai, the media quickly moved on from global warming to climate change, from the terms global warming to climate change, adapting a uh, adapting a partisan Republican framing of the issue that is meant to underestimate the threat. Could this all be happening, record-setting amounts of fossil fuel being burned annually, the United States and Canada continuing to subsidize with public resources already profitable corporations that are, are environmentally destruction? Could have this been happening without media complicity? Is this all happening because of a lack of news media scrutiny and a willingness to accept terms like climate change over global warming? Um, So I think you can look at this and say that the media is very much a part of the problem. It's not complicity, it's actually producing part of the issue. So uh, a lot of media nowadays won't just say climate change. We've moved away from global warming to climate change, and now we speak about climate crisis. Um, But the problem with that is, although it looks like we're taking seriously what's going on in the world, we're taking this, you know, it's a crisis, we have to act. In a strange way, the way the media foregrounds that it's a crisis actually becomes a way of avoiding responding to this crisis. And so this is one of the things we're trying to argue in the article is that one of the ways of denying what must be done about climate change is in a kind of paradoxical sense by taking it seriously, but not taking it seriously enough, by saying something must be done, but then not going much further than that. And I think that is very much where we're at with the media. So, Jody, yesterday we were talking, or sorry, not yesterday, on our last show on Thursday, we were talking with Richard Seymour, and Richard Seymour was talking about this idea of we are all in this together and how what that is is just a reproduction of uh, nationalist conservatives, uh, conservative nationalism, and uh, how that is not the case whatsoever. We are definitely not all in this together. Yet that is something that the media embraced right at the beginning of the global pandemic, right at the beginning of any natural disaster or unnatural disaster that takes place. The media immediately here in the United States wants us to all be in this together. What does that reveal to you about the media when they're pressing for a fiction that is completely untrue? Um, I think it's interesting because of the way that it naturalizes the disaster, right? It makes the disaster or the crisis into something that just happens to it and not something that a particular system is complicit in producing. So with COVID, it's not just the case that there is 
a, a pandemic, it's the case that the capitalist response isn't letting us grapple with it, particularly in the US and the UK, and we see it in Brazil. But I also want to complicate this blaming it on a mentality of national conservatism, because I think liberal humanitarianism has the same effect. And it's both of those together. National conservatism that thinks of a we all in terms of national views, but a liberal humanitarianism that again is just kind of like, oh, we have to respond in a sensitive way without addressing the fundamental structures of power and the fundamental role of the capitalist economy. That's fantastic. This is why we have Jody on the show. So, Jody, as, as liberal humanitarianism then and national conservatism, I just want to make sure that people understand that that is something. Those are two things that you believe are uh, bipartisan beliefs. Yeah. Yes, I do. I think they're two sides of the same coin, right? And those are what gets us kind of trapped into sort of what people think of as progressive neoliberalism versus the kind of sort of awful, um, you know, Trumpian, Bolsonaro. Um, what's um, I forgot the British Prime Minister. Um, Bor- oh God, his Boris name Johnson. Johnson. Boris Johnson. Thank you. It's like their version of national conservati- conservatism is one side and liberal humanitarianism is another side. Same phenomenon. So, Kai, uh, you both write that such a sharpening of the contradictions should prove politically invigorating. That, that is the contradictions within capitalism uh, as revealed by the pandemic. And you write that it hasn't so far. The old division between climate change deniers and the reality-based community has broken down, but a new one has yet to take political form. So it was this debate just over climate denialism or those who were opposed to climate denialism. And you write that the old fight against climate denialism benefited both sides, which may account for why some continue to struggle on this terrain. So, Kai, what happens to any debate when both sides benefit from the position they take? How does climate change denialism, the fight against it being beneficial for both sides, affect the fight against climate change? Yeah, this becomes very tricky, right? So the reason we make that point is because we're beginning, for a while, it worked for the climate movement. Let me go through the steps. It works for the climate movement to deny, um, to say, look, people who are in the fossil fuel industry and the governments are denying the true consequences of this movement, right? And so we can lobby science. Science is on our side and we can say global warming is taking place. And so we need a struggle. We need to fight and so this is the first step. And the environmental movement spent since the 1970s until I would say really the Green New Deal with, with this as its argument. You know, you're denying how serious this is and we have to take it seriously. The problem comes when you need to pivot away from that towards having a positive political vision of what to do about it. Um, and so the, the concern and the concern we're pushing against in the article is that we will just get trapped in this position of asking someone else to do the work of dealing with the climate crisis for us instead of stepping up with a true political vision uh, and moving forward ourselves. So, Jody, do you think anti-denialists were distracted by denialism? Um, I don't think it's a distraction exactly. I think it became a distraction. So in Um, We can look at it like an opportunity. So what did that do? So attacking climate denialists, right, which is like every right wing person, every conservative, every Republican, all these folks are climate denialism. And then that let um, the um, environmental movement broaden its um, broaden its coalition. And so it wasn't just going to be hippies and it wasn't just going to be sort of Sierra Club kind of old school um, elitist. It was going to be something much different and it could encompass the you know, kind of most radical all the way to scientists, all the way to conservatives because all of those people were against the denialist, right? The denialist, that was the enemy. And it seemed really promising. Media likes this story. It fits with the narrative from um, a fight, the fight against big tobacco. So it works really well as an opportunity to hone a coalition. But then the problem comes in with once the mainstream recognizes, yeah, climate change is real. I mean, for crying out loud, the U.S. Department of Defense has all sorts of different plans um, that come about with the rise of, of um, uh, prop, you know, prop warfare across the world and rise of migration and rise of, of discontent because of climate change. All of the real estate agents know about climate change and are worrying about flood insurance. I mean, it's the banks have various um, contingencies to think about climate change. It's not radical 
to say that climate change is real. And so now the issue is, okay, well, what is the fight? And the fight has to be against capitalism because it's capitalism that has locked us into a fossil fuel economy. Kai, you and Jody also write that while no one seriously denies climate change anymore, progressives have found new and often quite creative ways to deny climate change's true political consequences, guaranteeing that nothing essential has to change. Are progressives, Kai, in some sort of denialism when it comes to any critique of the racist, colonialist, capitalist system that you see the environmental justice movement protesting? What are progressives denying when it comes to environmental justice? I don't think they're denying the uh, racial inequalities of climate change. I don't think they're denying uh, issues around colonialism. I think we're seeing um, quite an active response to that in progressive uh, media outlets at the moment. What I think they're denying is where, where that takes you. So if you follow the consequences of colonialism through, you follow the consequences and repercussions of climate change to their logical end, it then becomes impossible to have a kind of partisan or um, partisan solution to this or a class compromise solution to this. Uh, it really, once you follow the logic to the end, you realize it's a space of class struggle, that we aren't all in this together, that we need a clear politics that pits those of us who are oppressed against the oppressors. And I think it's this that they're denying, not the, con- you know, the full consequences, the full consequences, not just that these things exist. And I it, think the fact that they foreshadow that they do exist is part of the problem in a strange kind of way. Exactly, exactly. That's, yeah, exactly. Uh, so uh, you also point to a lot of people who, a lot of writing by people who have been on our show. I think there's at least eight or ten people in your article that have been on our show. So if listeners want to, if you read this article, if you see somebody's name in there and you want to hear our interview with them, it's pretty easy to go find them. You mentioned the writing of uh, Roy Scranton and Jem Bendel, who, as you point out, write in terms of a civilizational us, a we of shared values, which we've already discussed, metaphysics and investment in the privileges of the carbon economy. There's no class struggle, no inequality of responsibility in the writing for or capacity to respond to the fires, droughts, floods, and storms of a rapidly changing planet. Politics disappears, replaced by the individual's psychological capacity to acknowledge the world and respond ethically, that is, reflectively. So, Jody, how important is an individual's psychological capacity to acknowledge the worst and respond ethically, that is, reflectively, to address any class struggle or inequality? Do we need to acknowledge the worst to respond ethically, not only to climate change, but to class struggle and inequality? Is that's what necessary for our first step in addressing these? You started asking the question, Chuck, by an individual's. How important is an individual's kind of psychological awareness about all this? And I would just say it's got zero importance. Individual's response does not matter. What matters is the building of a collective power capable of struggle. Now, then the next question is, well, but doesn't like doesn't it take like realizing climate doom for someone to join um, into a militant fighting organization? Um, I think that's an empirical question. I'm actually not convinced that the evidence is yes. I think that the um, that we're just as likely to say that it's um, if there are organizations that offer a sense, here's a, here's a way of struggle, here's a path, here are other meaningful ways to be involved, that it's not just kind of like psychological doom, right, that it's the end of the world. I actually think that kind of climate nihilism can really hurt building political capacity because it makes people think, well, we have no choice. It's all We're already doomed. And Kai, are we... Are writers like Royce Grant, people who are these kind of doomsayers, are they simply, I'm I'm trying to, I'm assuming that they're, they are well-intended. Are they simply overreacting to climate change denialism in order to try and eliminate it once and for all? Assuming their intention is to finally defeat climate change denialism, can overreacting to denialism have any unintended consequences? Uh, yeah, I mean, so, yes, I think I just want to reiterate what Jody's saying, really. So this, the idea that um, if we were just not taking it seriously enough, that if we recognize how bad things are, we'll act. This is very much uh, David Wallace Wells' perspective. 
Um, it, it forgets really that we need to have faith in ourselves to act. I think in a strange way where this comes from is a perspective that wants to say, well, in collective power is impossible, right? The only agent in the field who can act is the individual. And so we need to take individual responsibility and moral responsibility for the crisis. Um, and that very much blocks us taking it seriously. So what we need to do is move towards thinking collectively, as Jody's saying, and thinking politically. And then as far as it's not doing that, we're starting from entirely the wrong place. So it doesn't matter whether they doomsay or don't doomsay, as long as you start from the premise of the individual and moralism instead of collective struggle and politics, it, it, it's, it's a mute point. We won't solve this problem. And that uh, debate, uh, where the debate was standing, where it was climate change nihilism or opposition to climate change nihilism, as we were discussing earlier, those positions were beneficial for both sides. And Jody, uh, you mentioned the writing of someone who has not appeared on our show, actually, National Book Award winning novelist Jonathan Franzen, who has also written on climate change, including his collection of essays, The End of the End of the Earth. And you write that for Franzen, any hope of avoiding civilizational catastrophe is misguided, even harmful, leading to misplaced efforts and broken dreams. To think that we might build new transportation and energy systems, much less replace capitalist competition with communist planning, is a pipe dream, futile and delusional. We need accumulated capital in Franzen's world in order to weather the fires, hurricanes, droughts, and other emergencies as they increase in frequency and fear. The best we can do is buttress the status quo, promoting respect for laws and their enforcement, while also advocating for gun control and racial and gender equality. Our best course, in other words, is to follow the liberal line, not make a fuss, and we and be sure to remain on good terms with the police. If Bendel's and Scranton's embrace of climate catastrophe means that everything changes, Franzen's means that nothing does. Can those two be beneficial positions for each side today? Can we end up with a, a debate like that over climate change nihilism that benefits both sides? And w what would it mean for the debate if it had bo been boiled down to change nothing versus change everything? Oh, I like that question. I think that's interesting. Um, I mean, it seems to me that what we have here are um, that it's not going to... I want to argue that it's not going to be productive because it's not the same kind of thing. It's the at least the debate over climate change denialism at the beginning, let's say, uh, you know, in the 90s, at least that was political. Um, and then it becomes a placeholder blocking politics. With these, with the Franzen on the one side and the Mendel and Scranton on the other, what we have are two different moralisms, right? Or two kinds of moralisms that arise from a, an individuated psychological realization. And one is nihilistic and the other is a kind of, well, we just have to um, soldier on. So in a way, it's both, it's two kinds of stoicism, I think. And so the saying that every Everything changes for um, Vindell and Scranton is in a way of saying that people ha have to kind of psychologically give up. And the other one is like, well, you can psychologically give up, but still go on with your everyday life. And so both of them block action and prevent politics um, rather than holding open an option or a space to develop it. And uh, Kai, you also write about David Foster, David, sorry, I'm going to say David Foster, David Wallace Foster over and over again, and I don't want to. Uh, you're right, David Wallace Wells admits that he doesn't have a firm perspective on whether capitalism can solve the climate crisis, and yet he expresses an intuition, a kind of liberal environmentalist spidey sense that we don't need to abandon the prospect of economic growth to get a handle on climate change. This is the progressive denialism that you and Jody write about, uh, Kai. So uh, for these progressive denialists, what's so bad about abandoning economic growth as a model? Why are they so afraid at ending the model of economic development through constant and perpetual growth and consumption that has been the demise of much of our environment? I think because they've bought into the premise of your first question, Chuck. So the idea um, that what's good for the economy is good for humanity, right? So if we get rid of growth, which seems to be the very basis of the capitalist economy, then we're going to ruin any sense of progress or development or human well-being. Um, and once you buy into that, then anything that uh, calls into question the idea of economic growth or um, so an increase in GDP or 
because there are a couple of ways of measuring growth, right? So one is GDP growth, um, and the other is material throughput. So uh, materials, commodities coming into the economy, one or the other. Once you take away that, it seems as if what you're actually saying is that you want people to live worse lives. Um, and there's a big movement to try and push against this, the degrowth movement um, that is having more and more of an influence. It is trying to say, actually, no, we can separate out what is good for humanity uh, from what is good for the economy. And not only can we do that, but we have to do that if we want to have a livable planet. Well, Kyle, let me just follow up on that. But won't this is the logic that you will hear, but won't the market save the planet because the market wants to save itself? Won't the market do what's best for the planet eventually because it needs to save itself? Uh, no, <laughs> because the market, as we say in the article, there's a lot of money to be made from destroying the planet, sadly. And so the situation has to get extremely bad for capitalism to step in, for the market to step in and resolve this problem. And when I say extremely bad, I mean genocidal scale. Millions, if not billions of people will die before we have this kind of shift or transition. This isn't to say that I don't think capitalism can solve the climate crisis. I think it probably can, and it's an error to say that it, it cannot. But the stakes of what will have to happen for capitalism and the market to eventually do that is just simply too high. We see this in the fact that uh, the Green New Deal, for example, doesn't get rid of subsidies for the fossil fuel industry. Instead, it hopes that by subsidizing green, uh, green energy, that green energy will eventually replace fossil fuel energy in the market. Um, but actually what we see empirically is that when you bring more energy on board, whether it's renewable or fossil fuel, it's just consumed. Our consumption of energy goes up. And that's because that leads to an increase in growth, right? So we get into this kind of death spiral when we put our faith in the economy to solve this for it. And Jody, you and Kai also point towards the Green New Deal and how one of the major contradictions within the Green New Deal is that the capitalist system and the fossil fuel industries, we will need them, we'll need to tax them in order to be able to pay for the Green New Deal. We have to continue the fossil fuel industry in order to pay for the Green New Deal. Is there some other way to pay for the Green New Deal other than subsidizing the fossil fuel industry and other than using the capitalist system to fix the environment? We could uh, demilitarize. So if we recognize that the United States, that the U.S. Army is the largest institutional um, uh, carbon um, emitter on the planet, right, the U.S. military, then we demilitarize. We're already making a huge step forward. So we can use the same amount of money that has gone into, that we use to subsidize the military to develop um, other kinds of alternatives, right? Develop a different sort of electrical grid, um, develop different models of production that aren't gonna be as um, fossil fuel dependent. I mean, there are a variety of different things to do, but the, the funding could change if you just get rid of the US military. So that's actually pretty realistic. That doesn't require um, the massive, you know, a massive, massive change. But it's actually a, the kind of change that the um, capitalist class doesn't want because it relies on the U.S. military to you know, hold on to U.S. hegemony. And Kai, you also, you and Jody also write about Extinction Rebellion. Jem Bendel is a person who speaks at a lot of their rallies and is linked and works with uh, Extinction Rebellion. We've spoken uh, on our show with one of the co-founders of Extinction Rebellion in the past. You write progressive intellectuals are not the only ones who deny that the climate crisis is political. Extinction Rebellion, one of today's most prominent environmental movements, argues that climate science speaks for itself and that politics get in the way of action. The movement thus calls for a move beyond politics. The result is a denial of politics and a denial of responsibility. To you, Kai, what explains this dislike for politics? Is this merely an attempt to make the movement all inclusive? And what's wrong with making your top priority inclusiveness when fighting climate change? Great question. Um, so I think it is a move to make it all inclusive. I think it's very much, uh, it comes from an understanding that politics is divisive, which I wouldn't deny. That's, you know, it is. And the only way really to resolve the climate crisis is with a collective effort that cuts across class lines that is nonpartisan. Um, I think that's 
and the understandable reason why they try to separate themselves away from politics. I think they're also trying not to play party political games. So um, in the UK, where Extinction Rebellion began, it doesn't want to say, you know, we're with the Labour Party or the Green Party or the Conservatives. It wants to be able to say we're outside of the parliamentary agenda. Um, and so we're apolitical. The, the, the danger... Um, there, I think, is that the way, what that ends up doing in practice is that Extinction Rebellion levels a series of demands at the government, right? And it asks the government to do things like decarbonize by 2030, which no party in the UK is willing to do. Um, but it appeals on the basis not of politics. Whenever you lose politics, moralism comes in in its place, right? It appeals on the basis of the moral fortitude of the government and of business to do the right thing. The error with that is that capitalism doesn't have morals fundamentally, and that while politicians might have morals, they don't share the kind of ethical or moral worldview that Extinction Rebellion does. And so they're just simply not going to act. Jody, I keep thinking that this is just a confusion that people have with the word politics and the word partisanism. I can see how Extinction Rebellion would want to tell people we are not partisan, but they've just conflated the word politics with partisan. Am I onto something that this is a confusion at the organizing level of Extinction Rebellion and a confusion generally that we have within conventional wisdom that, partis- that politics is nothing but partisanism? Um, I actually don't think it's a confusion. I think that politics is partisan and that we have to own that. I think it's a fear of division and a fear of partisanship that comes back to this um, this two sides of national conservatism and liberal humanism, both of which say that to fight for something is wrong. And why why do we have that view? That view is part of this, I would say the generalized demonization of communism, the demonization of worker struggle, the demonization of any kind of politics that actually is going to try to make fundamental change, right? Anything that is going to start to get at the heart of the system and require that it change is off the table. But something that can be moralistic and say, well, as good Americans, we should all turn our thermostats down, or as good liberal humanitarians, we need to make sure we don't um, use plastic bags. I mean, those things people can get behind because they let the system keep going. But once it's like, no, we have to have a fundamental change, then people freak out. Kai, is being apolitical like Extinction Rebellion wants to be, is first of all, is that possible? And if it is possible, what do apolitical politics look like? Um, so I won't get to the second bit because I agree. I don't think it is possible to be apolitical. I think um, by pretending that they're apolitical, what they're actually doing is siding with a status quo. Um, so things that it's that it's really that simple. And without a, a politics, you default to a kind of uh, liberal worldview where there aren't these fundamental class antagonisms, um, and that is is a worldview. It is a politics, even if it pretends that it isn't. And Jody, Extinction Rebellion states, we rebel, calling in joy, creativity, and beauty. We rise in the name of truth and withdraw our consent for ecocide, oppression, and patriarchy. We promote civil disobedience and rebellion because we think it is necessary. We are asking people to find their courage and to collectively do what is necessary to bring about change. We rise in the name of truth and withdraw our consent for ecocide, oppression, and patriarchy. We rise up for a world where power is shared for regeneration, repair, and reconciliation. We rise for love in its ultimate wisdom our vision stretches beyond our own lifespan lifespan to a horizon dedicated to future generations and the restoration of our planet's integrity jody is there a politics in their vision of power shared for regeneration repair and reconciliation because when reading their principles and values there seems to be a lot about recruiting and getting everyone on board but not as much about what is to be done afterwards. So is there a politics in their vision of power shared for regeneration, repair, and reconciliation, even though they may deny there is? If we think about this vision of shared power and reconciliation as a 
dramatic contrast to the kind of polit- to the kinds of societies that we have, um, particularly I'll just use the U.S. and the U.K. for example. Then there is an implicit critique. There's an implicit critique that says we live in societies that. Um, don't share power, where power is concentrated in the hands of oppressors against um, women, people of color, working people, indigenous people, and we have to change that. So underpinning the language of reconciliation is a realization of a immensely divided world. But I think that they skip a step, which is the fight for a reconciled world. It's not that you can go one person at a time and say and sort of achieve reconciliation, and the reason is because the you know the billionaires are going to hold on to their power and hold on to their money. It's not like you're going to get Jeff Bezos coming out saying, "Oh, y'all are right. I'm just going to give away all my money and be reconciled with the people." That's not the way it works. So there's an implicit politics that's denied in the the um, move that says we can just do this one at a time or do this by coming out in the streets that doesn't give the account of how the change is going to occur. Well, let me follow up with you on that, Jody. To what extent do you think there's a hope that the ruling class will have some sort of altruistic benefactor because convincing them to do so is nonviolent, avoids a more confrontational strategy toward the ruling class that that may lead to violence. And the ruling class has a lot of guns and police. So to what extent do you think that this hope that the ruling class will somehow all of a sudden become altruistic is a hope that we can have some sort of solution or conclusion without violence and confrontation? It's a delusional fantasy. That's about the best answer you can have for that. Kai, uh, so uh, can progressive denialism, because this is a very important part of your writing with Jody, can progressive denialism undermine any state response, any collective response to climate change? Can progressive denialism undermine it? Could you, so what do you mean? Do you mean that can it, you, well, you, you so you, you write, few are persuaded by the den- denial of the political nature of climate change. Persistent mobilization by grassroots activists has placed climate clearly on the political agenda. Polls in the UK and the US indicate that voters recognize climate change as a matter of politics. It's an issue that simultaneously divides and necess- necessitates a political response. Moreover, as is clear to nearly everyone, the scale of the catastrophe requires a state response. Does the does progressive denialism undermine that realization that with the scale of this catastrophe requires a state response? Got it. Um, yes and no. So it, it can, right? But I think in a strange way, the Green New Deal, which is something we talk quite extensively about in the article as well, uh, is a state response. Um, so it, it doesn't necessarily block the possibility of a state response to the climate crisis, what it blocks is the possibility of a sufficient state response to res- to take forward um, a climate agenda that we need to see to have a more equal and sustainable world. So just a couple more questions for you. We have been speaking with Kai Hearn and Jody Dean, who co-wrote the E-Flux article, Revolution or Ruin. Uh, Jody, you also write that even as mobilized volunteers and mutual aid can meet real needs by distributing meals, assisting neighbors, and coordinating webinars, they are inadequate for the most demanding tasks of developing and administering tests for the virus, securing hospital beds and intensive care units, producing and distributing respirators, and providing adequate protective equipment at the necessary scale, the kind of scale we need to address climate change. Mutual aid is inspiring, but it's not enough. It can't stop the hoarders and profiteers, pay hospital bills and employment insurance, unemployment insurance, release prisoners and detainees. It doesn't scale, particularly when the prevailing logic comes from the market. As long as we do not, as the workers, as the people, do not own the means of production, Jody, it will not fulfill society's needs, but shareholders and profiteers' demands. Can those who want to save the planet from climate change, who want to save the planet from a global pandemic, do both and still save capitalism by giving workers and the poor the means of production? Would um I don't even know what it would mean to save capitalism by giving workers and the poor the means of production. I mean, capitalism requires the exploitation of labor. 
If the work, if um, working people own the means of production, then they are not going to uh, organize it in terms of capital accumulation and market exchange. So it's pretty much an either or here. Either we have an economy that saves the planet and um, secures the means for a decent future for the majority of people on the planet, or we have capitalism. You can't have it both ways. And that's the kind of, I think, fantasy structure that has been too strong on the left is, you know, particularly in the last 20 or 30 years, not the, the good old fashioned commie left, but the, the sense that somehow it's, we can have capitalism. No, right? that's the problem. Just a couple more questions for you. Actually, just one last question for each of you. We end each one of our interviews, Kai, Jody knows this already, with the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. We have a question from hell for each of you. We have been speaking with Kai Heron, who is a casualized academic with research interests in political theory, ecology, psychoanalysis, and political economy. He's an editor at Roar Magazine, which you can find at roarmag.org. And we've been speaking with Jody Dean, professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva. Her most recent book is Comrade, an essay on political belonging, which we discussed with Jody on the show in August. This is Jody's fourth appearance on the show, and you can hear all of our interviews with her at thisishell.com. So our quest, let's start with you, Kai. Our question from <laughs> hell for you is, is the left afraid of challenging capitalism and if so why because you write the left sees that capitalism is responsible for climate change it recognizes the urgency of the situation but instead of building its capacity to seize the state it advocates small-scale local decentralized solutions and more protests and democracy so is the left afraid of challenging capitalism and if so why that is a wonderful question <laughs> and it is a question from hell um Ah, I wouldn't say afraid of combating capitalism. I think what we're getting, uh, we're uh, learning to do, right, through things like Extinction Rebellion, through the Green New Deal, is we're learning to sort of take responsibility and learning that we must act ourselves if we're going to free ourselves and fundamentally have a sustainable society in the future. Um, so it's not so much that we're afraid of confronting capitalism, though I do think, you know, the, the left in the developed world is in a very comfortable position we do benefit more than, say, those in the global south who are feeling the effects of climate change much faster than we are. But it's not that we're afraid to confront it. It's that we need to learn to exercise responsibility to stop demanding that others take action for us and start collectively building the kinds of organizations that we need to kind of exert our will on capital. That's where we need to get to. And Jody, you and Kai also write, what if electrical workers all over the world follow the lead of their French comrades and turned off the lights? What if all transport workers refused to drive or fly all vehicles that weren't zero emissions? What if the global working class emulated the 250 million Indians who brought their country to a halt with their January 8th, 2020 general strike? which you probably didn't see on the news here in the States. Such mass uh, working class action creates the space for further radicalization, further organization, further conviction that we have the capacity to bring about a radical transformation of the global economy. Organization, not moralism, gives us the power. But Jody, doesn't interrupting capital circulation hurt the most vulnerable and marginalized more than anyone else? So shouldn't we avoid such a disruption if we are concerned about the most mar marginalized? Um, you know, that's the kind of question that always tries to undermine workers. It says, don't strike because you're not going to get your wages. If workers hadn't been brave enough to strike, they never would have gotten an eight-hour working day. They never would have gotten any kind of benefits. They never would have gotten even a minimum wage. So I think it's a, a, a kind of fake moralism to say, oh, no, you know, don't ever strike. Don't ever fight back because things will be worse. In fact, that's why we have organizations to provide the kind of support and solidarity that anyone going out there um, to struggle will need to get through. So no, it's not, I mean, it's, it's a false dilemma that says, oh, only hold on to this little bit that you have right now in order to, you know, keep the whole system running when in fact what we have to do is take it all. 
And even though we have been speaking with Kai and Jody for a good 40, 45 minutes about this article, there is far more to this article than just the conversation that we have had today. And I cannot suggest strongly enough to everybody who's listening, please go read Kai Heron and Jody Dean's article, which was at Eflux, Revolution or Ruin. It really is fantastic. Thanks to both of you for being on the show this week. Starting off our week with you two is really fantastic. Thanks so much for being back on the show, Jody, and great to have you on the show, Kai. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Take care. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. It's, by the way, one of the things they talk about in there is uh, this idea of self-interest, like a really rich capitalist will suddenly have altruistic self-interest and fix everything. And it just makes me think about how so many people were critical of the working class in the Rust Belt and them going against their own self-interest by, by, writing, writing, uh, or by voting for President Trump. And this whole obsession that we have with believing what we think others' self-interest is. is uh, anyway, you got to check out the article. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. On July 9th, 1850, 170 years ago this Thursday, U.S. President Zachary Taylor, a former Army general, died at the age of 65. Just a few days earlier, disregarding the warnings of doctors about an ongoing cholera epidemic, he had consumed large amounts of fresh cherries and raw, unpasteurized milk after a 4th of July celebration in Washington. Speaking of which, uh, since his speech at Mount Rushmore, has anyone offered President Trump fresh cherries and raw, unpasteurized milk? Because I understand those that, that cures the coronavirus. A slave owner and career, career military man, Taylor was everything Trump wants to be, Taylor had been acclaimed for his performance in wars against the British, Native Americans, and armies of Mexico. Well, Trump would love to go to war against two of those three. And although some in Washington had viewed Taylor as unqualified for the presidency, so he and Trump have a lot in common, Taylor had all allowed uh, leaders of the Whig Party to persuade him to run. The Whig Party? Okay, there are far too many similarities between Trump and Taylor. But Taylor had been a reluctant candidate without clear political positions, and the similarities to Trump are mounting. Not only had Taylor never held elective office, but before running for president, he had never even bothered to vote. He accomplished little during his 16 months in office, and doctors hastily diagnosed his fatal illness as cholera. But from his death until the present day, some reputable historians have suspected that Taylor was deliberately poisoned, perhaps with arsenic. In 1991, his grave was opened and his remains were exhumed and scientifically tested for the presence of poison. The results were inconclusive. Of course, we would never suggest poisoning a president because I think that's against the law. But we can certainly advocate offering President Trump fresh cherries and raw and pasteurized milk as often as possible, unless you can convince the president arsenic cures the virus, but that's on you. In Rotten History, July 10th, 1869, 151 years ago this Friday, the Swedish town of Gjavla, about 100 miles north of Stockholm, was destroyed by a massive fire that quickly spread across the northern part of the city, burning down everything north of the river that cut through the town. The fire left some 8,000 people homeless and destroyed 350 farms in the surrounding area. Ten years after the fire, Galvia, I love saying, Gjavla, was the birthplace of the Swedish-American labor activist, Joel Emanuel Hagland, better known as Joe Hill, who would emigrate to the United States, become an international worker of the world labor activist, and end up getting executed on trumped-up charges in 1915. So fire burned through the birthplace of Joe Hill, and then Joe Hill burned through the United States like a fire. Cool. In more recent, the er recent years, the area of Gavla that survived the Great Fire, has become known for the Yavla Goat, an enormous figure of a traditional Yule goat made of straw, erected in the town square every year during Christmas season. Goats are huge in Swedish Christmas iconography for whatever reason. Despite heavy security and the threat of three months in jail, the giant straw goat has been an irresistible target for pyromaniac pranksters and has been burned to cinders 37 times since it was first appeared in 1966. So in 1869 fire, in the Swedish town where Joe Hill would be born 10 years later, 
has a tradition of putting up a straw goat at Christmas, and pranksters love to set it on fire. Got it. After the 1986 nuclear accident in Chernobyl, the peculiarities of wind patterns dumped an especially high dose of radioactivity on the town of Yavla, making it one of the most heavily affected European cities outside of the Soviet Union. All right, so town burns. Years later, a labor activist is born. Years after that, a tradition begins of displaying a straw goat at Christmas, which pranks are set on fire, and Chernobyl dumped a huge amount of radiation on the town. Now that's some rotten history, Yavla. Finally, in rotten history, July 11th, 1995, 25 years ago this Saturday, units of the Bosnian Serb Army and mid-1990s, anything to do with Bosnian and or Serbs gets real rotten, under the command of General Ratko Mladic, and this is about to get really, really rotten. Mladic began the genocidal killing of more than 8,300 Bosnian Muslim men and women in and around the town of Srebrenica, along with the rape torture and forced deportation of thousands of women, children, and old people who had sought protection at a United Nations compound in the area. Yeah, freaking evil. Jesus. God, Mladic. Blue-helmeted UN peacekeeping troops forced some victims out of the compound, then stood by and essentially did nothing. Hey, they were on a peacekeeping mission, although I don't know how forcing people out of a compound where they're safe actually keeps any peace. The countless bloody atrocities that took place over the next few days caused the Srebrenica massacre to be called the worst crime on European soil since World War II. Now that's rotten history, and this is hell. Alex, who's going to be on tomorrow's show? Uh, Eugene McCann will be on to talk about his Society and Space Journal article, Spaces of Publicness and the World After the Coronavirus Crisis. And then what's happening Wednesday? Beans, baby. Uh, (laughs) Craig Hetherington will be on to talk about his book from Duke University Press, The Government of Beans, Regulating Life in the Age of Monocrops. And on Thursday, I know Jeff Dorchin will be wrapping up the show with a moment of truth. Who else will be on Thursday's show? Real excited to say hi to Flint Taylor. He'll be back on. He wanted to know if you want to come into the studio, or do you uh, want to do this via phone? Uh, Dude, I don't know. No, I don't want to kill him. Okay. (laughs) So, well, via phone, then. Uh, Flint Taylor, he's probably listening right now. Flint will be on to talk about his new Truth Out op-ed, Police Unions Are Racist Power Brokers in the Opposition to Movement for Black Lives. There is no way they are tracing coronavirus that Flint Taylor gets Back to me, you, this space in any way. Yeah. Yeah. No way is anybody coming into the studio for a while. All right. I want to. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, after three air show host, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alex for producing. Thanks to Kai and Jody for being on this week's show. That's Kai Heron and Jody Dean, who co wrote the EFLUX article, Revolution or Ruin, that you should go check out. Special thanks to Theron Humiston and Richard Norwood for behind-the-scenes work on the show. We told you so. This is Hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>